Well, the definition of enchantment is a feeling of great pleasure and delight. And I think it goes hand in hand with wonder, right? And wonder means a feeling of surprise caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. So for me, these two words together are important because they are in the interplay between joy and the unknown. As an artist, I center enchantment in order to activate my curiosity and the curiosity of others. And it's a practice. It's a practice for these times because that which causes wonder in us is also, it also causes curiosity. And I find it essential that we get curious enough to see what's behind the breaking of the climate crisis. What's behind? the breaking of the climate crisis? What's through the wreckage of extinction? What's inside the burning of a world on fire? Imagination is the weaver of wonder and it is most easily achieved by creating a sense of enchantment in the other. Welcome back to the Sounds of Sand podcast. My name is Michael Riley, and I'm delighted to spend the hour with our guest, Alexa Garcia. Alexa Garcia is a Colombian-born, globally-raised, multidisciplinary artist, activist, and cultural activator whose work is imbued in ritual, spirit, and deep reverence for our great mother, great lover, our Earth. She is an award-winning poet and filmmaker, and a professional writer, visual artist, musician, and facilitator. And stick around to the end of the episode when we'll present a new musical poetry piece by Alexa called A Message from the Future. We recorded this conversation in mid-September 2023. So there's some discussion at the end of the episode about Burning Man 2023 that Alexa was present for and performed and contributed art at And also, I want to say this episode was recorded before the current war in the Middle East. And Alexa is very present on her Instagram account. And you can find a a link in the show notes. And she's there sharing resources and information about the plight of what's happening in Gaza. So definitely check that out and stay connected with her there. And although it's not mentioned by name, the specter of this current war can be felt deep in the resonances and holographic realities she presents in this wonderful episode entitled On Extinction and Enchantment with Alexa Garcia today on the Sounds of Sand podcast presented by Science and Non-Duality. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious. Being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. All right. I'm here with Alexa Garcia on the Sounds of Sand podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Bless it. (laughs) Yeah. So as a way to orient the listeners, uh, for those who may not be familiar with your work, would you mind speaking a bit about your ancestry, your past, your lineage? Um, So I I come from the land of the Embarachami, in what is now known as Fredonia, in the state of Antioquia, Colombia. 
I was born with indigenous black and Spanish roots. And so I'm the daughter of colonization, uh, but most importantly, I'm the daughter of its resistance. I'm known as Alixa Garcia, but I have four last names uh, that carry my mother's and grandmother's lineages. And though Colombians typically have two last names following the Spanish naming convention, the tradition in my family came from my Afro-Colombian grandmother, my abuelita, who raised us in an attempt to maintain visibility in an otherwise historically violent and invisibilizing nation for Black and Indigenous communities. Yeah, so I would say that that's, that's a bit of my, of my lineage and where Beautiful. I come from. Yeah. <laughs> would, you, would you like to, to say those four names so we can hear the full... Uh, I'd rather not because okay. it feels like permanently placed on the internet. Um, oh, I see. No problem. Yeah, but if it wasn't on the internet, I'm happy to share it with you and I share it with people in person. Um, I love to introduce myself fully with my name um, to really bring the entirety of, of what, well, let's not say the entirety, right? Because we're comprised by so many ancestors, but to really welcome with an open door the ancestry that walks behind me. Uh, but there's something about recording it, you know, mm -hmm. and having it permanently placed on the internet that feels off. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that feels no, off. But yeah, in total, I have six names. So it's, yeah. it's, a, long, it's a long journey there. <laughs> Beautiful. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your work, so connecting, connecting with what you create and co-create in the world. So you do music and art. And how do you weave all of these together and how do you orient yourself in terms of, of what you, yeah, your creative process? Yeah. So, you know, just as, as hurt people hurt people, uh, really believe, and I've been saying for years on many stages, healed people heal people. And art, when imbued with animism, can help to heal us by resacralizing our violent, disconnected, and materialistic world re-enchanting us with wonder and reverence for all life. Art, uh, for me, is where my soul is fully expressed. As a child who lived through and fled war, a racially mixed immigrant, um, living in and out of the United States as a queer woman, I felt early on the need to process the world around me through creative output. As a human, as a poet, as a spirit, I also learned that art can be one of the most potent medicines and powerful tools for remembering our collective dismembered psyche. Uh, for the past 23 years, my purpose as an artist has been to listen and to tincture and to bring back the messages I'm able to gather by paying close attention to the sound of extinction as it draws near and why this extinction. For those who don't know yet, we are entering the heart of the sixth mass extinction. Roughly 150 to 200 species are going extinct every single day right now. A human language is lost every three to five weeks right now. So as an artist, my faith lies in our ability to collectively point the attention to the resonating echo of what's coming through intentional creation um, that in its highest form activates 
right? Transforming the art goer from a spectator into a witness, from a consumer into a conscientious participant, right? So through hip hop, visionary and speculative fiction, visual art, film, theater, hip hop, music production, and even through my facilitation, which I very much treat as an art form, I try to capture the beauty that precedes and outlives the terrors of state violence, of displacement, and of environmental injustice. My work is often big, it's often immersive, interactive, multi-sensory, um, and all of my work has a race, class, and gender analysis, right? I centralize women, LGBTQ, gender non-conforming, immigrants, marginalized people like myself, uh, because I believe in the power of representing ourselves inside of a narrative that would rather see us in parts. I believe that the artist can more effectively point our human attention to the places needing amplification and transformation through intentional creation that activates. Um, attention creates intention, right? And so the things that we give attention to uh, become intentionally created. So yeah, in my work, you know, that has been my work until COVID really was about amplifying, trying to get people to understand that the doors are closing, right? These opportunities for our species. Now planet Earth will be here, right? Planet Earth is fine. We definitely are taking a lot of its life with us, um, but until our sun explodes <laughs> and, and it becomes a whole other story, um, until Andromeda reaches the Milky Way and that becomes a whole other story, right? For now, the story of now is us and, and, and our existence on this planet. And for me, I really do feel like our sole responsibility, soul, S-O-U-L, responsibility is, um, is, is as a a mirrored witness of the universe. We are the universe witnessing itself unfold. And we have forgotten, I feel like, that soul uh, contract. And, and we are paying the consequences now, right? We were born in the age of consequence and we are paying the consequence of that now. And so for me, the, this moment um, as an artist uh, for about a good, 20 years was like waking people up and being like, come on, come on, come on, come on. And then COVID came and it shifted everything, right? It was almost like, okay, no, actually this thing that we've been trying to wake people up for has come. As far as I'm concerned, in 2016, when the earth hit three degrees globally for the first time was when we hit the wall, right? And everything since then has been a ricocheting effect that will only compound on itself. Um, and so now my work as of late, I would say, yeah, since the pandemic has been around this inquiry of how as a species do we die with dignity? How do we honor our soul journey in this transition, right? Because energy cannot be destroyed, it can only be transformed. And so we're bound to this place one way or another. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a little bit of <laughs> the art <laughs> and how that's, I use the art and how I bring it back into play. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say a little bit. That was a lot. <laughs> no, that was so beautiful. There's so many interconnected threads there. I'm trying to think where, where to go next. 
this shift from yeah waking people up activating them to to uh, to a, a posture of dying with dignity as you said um yeah is that so that's collective grief is that also Absolutely. how to help how to help one another like what are the little things we can do for each other in that we're all in this together yeah I, I mean, I think honoring where we are and and really seeing what we've done and sitting, right? Just sitting with what is, is a big thing that is being asked of us right now. Um, you know, there's, there's this poem uh, that we have that ends, water cannot be held captive. It will reshape even stone. And we will be the shapers who carve out the unknown, um, right? And we're carving the unknown as we move into it and as we move through it. And for me right now, there's a big practice of enchantment in times of collapse, um, where there is a need and desire for liberation. Futurist imagination and practices have always existed. Futurism is an ancestral practice and one that I believe as an artist, uh, as a seeker of peace, as a believer of culture shifting for evolutionary growth is essential in, a, in any liberatory practice, right? So for example, bring it back to my country and my own history, like the history of where I come from. Um, at the end of the 16th century, a period in which the conquest and colonization of the American continent was consolidated in the hands of the Spanish empire, a leader emerged against the trafficking of millions of kidnapped and enslaved African peoples in what is now known as Colombia, my home. And his name uh, was Domingo Bencos Biao. And Benco Biao was born into a royal family in Guinea-Bissau. He was of Mandinka origin, and he was seized by a Portuguese slave trader and sold to a Spanish businessman who transported him to what is now known as Colombia. He made his escape when the boat that was transporting him down the Magdalena River sank. Now the Magdalena is the fifth largest river basin in South America, just to give some context of the landscape mm -hmm. that he escaped into. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was recaptured later on, but escaped again in 1599, along with 10 enslaved people to the interior mountains surrounding Cartagena, creating the first Palenques. Uh, what we call Palenque, uh, are inaccessible places of refuge that eventually became liberated settlements for hundreds of enslaved peoples fleeing the violence of slavery. In Brazil, they call them quilombos, right? These existed throughout Latin America. And he organized an army that came to dominate all of the Montes de Maria region. He also formed an intelligence network and used the information collected to help organize more escapes and guide the runaway slaves into the liberate, liberated territory. In a lot of ways, he was our Harriet Tubman, right? Mm -hmm. And in 1713... 114 years after Bio established this first Palenque, known as San Basilio de Palenque, 
It became the first village in the Americas founded by formerly enslaved Africans to be set free by decree from the King of Spain. When he um, gave up, when he, when he gave up sending his troops to their fortified mountains, right? The King of Spain was like, this is too much. We can't penetrate this. Um, Benko Bios emerged as a leader of the Colombian Palenques because he transformed the imagination around this process of colonization and enslavement, showing that it was possible to escape the institution and practices of slavery while simultaneously creating new and self-generated, emergent and liberated ways of living. Now, Palenqueros and Maroons escaping oppression developed these palenques and in them they developed new social and cultural networks to resist slavery in the new kingdom of Granada, the name for the region uh, during this colonial period. That's what Colombia used to be called. And Domingo Benco's B.O. and those original palenqueros are some of the greatest examples of Afrofuturists. And we're talking about late 16th and 17th centuries. And not just because they liberated themselves from slavery, but how they did it. And that's really the work of, of futurist thinking, right? And so it's interesting to be talking about futurism when we're talking about extinction simultaneously. Right, but if you think about enslaved people, all they saw was extinction, right? That, that was it. And there was still a thrive for life. So to be a futurist requires deep levels of creativity, of imagination, and employing of creative strategies using the things we have in the here and in the now, and transforming them into something other, right? Something beyond what is traditionally scene. Mm. So during this period, hair on women and children became very important in, in, in construction of these palenquero societies. As you know, some people might know, or maybe not, hair played a huge role in the transatlantic slave trade because enslaved people would hide seeds, they would hide gold, they would hide precious metals or stones in their hair in hopes of helping their survivability upon arrival to the unknown. And in Colombia, in the creation of the Palenques, it went a bit further. So during this time in that region, women were generally sent to find seeds, enslaved women were sent to find seeds in the mountains for later sowing and harvesting. And so they knew the terrain well. They, they knew where they could find water, where the mountain would get more difficult for the slaver to reach, etc. And they used this information in order to plan their escapes. This is where um, imagination and creativity comes into play. So the women observed the mountains and using an intricate hair braiding process would design and sculpt maps of freedom on the heads of the shortest women and on the heads of the children. Wow. Yeah. So through intricate braiding, they would draw out paths and escape routes locating and identifying the highest mountains, the tallest trees, a swampy terrain, for example, was represented in the hairstyle with furrows. A river was represented with a braid in the shape of a worm. A bantu knot 
which is still called the Bantuna, represented a mountain. And if there were soldiers on any part of the route, they would use really thick braids, still known today in the Pacific region of Colombia as tropas, or in English, troops. So the hairstyle could also indicate where a runaway could find water. Uh, a, a, a particular hairstyle called departes, meaning to depart in English, meant that a woman wearing wanted to escape. So if the woman was wearing a, a, the, the style of departes, it meant that they wanted to escape and they would get support from the communities. They would record with their braids liberation paths and obstacles they would encounter along the journey to help others escape. So the language on the body with codes unknown to the masters allowed for collective liberation. Thus hairstyles which could have served as markers of tribal and ethnic affiliation, even social status in Africa, played an imperative role as a beautiful and complicated secret language for liberation. Uh, you know, so yeah, I could keep going, right? Like, but imagination, <laughs> to me, imagination is the disrober of colonization, right? Science fiction, prayer, intention setting, manifesting, social justice, even having a baby are all practices in futurism. Mm. What imbues the word futurism with animism is the act of imagination. Imagination is the doorway to enchantment and wonder, which for me is at the heart of any successful liberatory practice, right? So bringing it back to, um, to B.O., in, uh, on July 18th of 1605, so, right, so we're going back in time, mm -hmm. the governor of Cartagena, um, his name was Jerónimo de Suazo y Casola, Unable to defeat the Maroons, right, the escaped free and uh, formerly enslaved Africans, offered a peace treaty to Bio, and recognizing the autonomy of the Matuna Bio Palenque. And the treaty was violated by the Spaniards 14 years later. So it, it existed for about 14 years and then it was violated by the Spanish when they captured Bio as he was walking unprotected into the city. He was hanged and he was quartered on March 16th, 1621, three days before my birthday. Uh, and Governor Garcia Giron um, at the time, right, and it's just, it, my last name's Garcia, his name's Garcia, and you really just start to see the entanglement of things, right? <laughs> so Garcia Giron ordered the execution, arguing that quote unquote, it was dangerous the extent to which Bio was respected in the population and that his enchantment would drive the nations of Guinea away from the city. So I first read this quote, I was deeply impacted, right? Quote, it was dangerous the extent of Bio's enchantment, unquote. And as an artist, as a poet, as even an activist, though I have an edge with that word, uh, I've been thinking, writing, practicing, and centering the role of enchantment in our liberatory practices since I got on this path, you know, in, in the early 2000s. Um, I co-founded this group called Climbing Poetry, 
we studied deeply the intersections of state violence, displacement, and environmental injustice, and used poetry, music, art, uh, to tincture these very complex systems into digestible truths. Uh, for me, state violence, displacement, and environmental injustice is the continued triangulation of colonization turned globalization, turned late-stage capitalism. Right? It, it is the three pillars that uphold the continuation of this violence. And despite our unflinching look at these systems of oppression, right, through these poetic performances, we toured for 18 years around the world, spreading seeds, bringing consciousness to people, being like, hey, y'all, this is all connected. This is all connected. We centered beauty and the beauty of life. Um, and we we brought wonder and enchantment into the room because we knew that truth can only be witnessed when dressed in a beautiful story. Mm. Nobody ever wants to look at the truth right on, <laughs> right? So for example, our largest theater production, Hurricane Season, The Hidden Messages in Water, we traveled to 51 cities across the US on a bus we converted to run and recycle vegetable oil. 11,000 miles <laughs> on recycled vegetable oils from, you know, we were running on Japanese restaurant oil, uh, Mexican oil, and Thai, Thai restaurants oil. We built a set made out of nine-foot bamboo and shat in a shadow art of a flock of birds in flight surrounded the audience illuminated from behind. We had calabash lanterns carved with creation stories that illuminated from above. There was a water ceremony as people walked in. We had allowed 10 people at a time to walk into the space and do this water ceremony. And we concluded the whole performance with a fire ceremony. And we invited every single room, 51 cities, to find their voice. What is the collective sound of this place? And every place sounded different. You know, some places sounded like the forest when the people were invited to just hear each other and add their voice to what they heard. And some places sounded like a ruckus, and some places sounded like a southern church, and some places sounded like a moan and a wail, right? There's something about bringing beauty and, and, and bringing the ritual and breaking the fourth wall, right? And also not just inspiring people, and activating them, but also letting them plug into something tangible. So with that tour, we also featured over 250 organizations and groups of people doing the healing work locally in their communities so that those very audiences who were inspired, who were ready to be activated, could connect and implement tangible action mm -hmm. immediately. Um, so yeah, you know, that, that's, that's some of that, that's some of that work. <laughs> It's lovely because I one of my questions was to further go into this concept of enchantment. So I think you. you uh, oh, I can go deeper. 
We yeah. can go. We could go even deeper on that. <laughs> well, I just want to. I just wanted to respond to a few. Yeah, well, first, of course. First was please. hearing hearing this. Uh, hearing another story of Afrofuturism, because where I'm recording from Philadelphia, uh, there's a narrative of Afrofuturism that uh, mm. extends from Sun Ra and mm. Rashida Phillips and more mother, mm. this other, bringing in Egyptology and the sort of that strand of, through science fiction and music uh, coming. So to hear a, another branch of that tree of Afrofuturism is really, is really beautiful. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, and I think it's such a beautiful, I think it, it probably is a place that we continue to look to because 500 years of slavery um, mm -hmm. is a long time to reckon with. And it's a long time of generation after generation feeling like one is going extinct yeah. um, or one is at the door of death. Um, yeah. And we are in another kind of door of death. And, you know, it's not comp it's different, but that little piece it resonates, right? Yeah. That little piece resonates. Yeah, be, you know, because it's not, you know, we have stories of extinction from very far, you know, antiquity, things oh, like yeah. Noah's flood or things like that from the Bible. But to have these people whose, you know, ancestors were uh, living, living through this extinction, through the, through the brutalization of, of slavery in the Americas um, takes it to another level. And when you were talking about the, the coded maps in the women's hair, I mean, I was getting, getting chills hearing that. Yeah, and uh, also our indigenous siblings, right? They've, they've also experienced, sure. and there's this beautiful resurgence um, mm. and power and honoring that, that's coming to light in that, in that world that I'm that I'm, you know, and it makes sense. It makes sense that as the as our time on Earth comes to an end because of what we've done through yeah. these colonial practices, that the very people who protected Earth and had a right relationship with Earth and have a lot in a lot of ways kept that uninterrupted. Not all, but a lot of communities, indigenous communities, have kept that uninterrupted. That now we're looking to them for yeah. solutions, looking to them for inspiration, looking to them um, for, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's part of the inquiry and dialogue we're having here at Science and Non-Duality as, as we're working on a new film about indigenous resilience. Uh, we did an episode a few uh, episodes back with Zion Maurizio, the founders who are actually making this film with global indigenous communities and figuring out how do we ask the questions of, you know, basically how did you, how did you all do it? You know, mm. but without being extractive, without exactly. kind of using the same mindset of capitalism to be like, okay, let's just extract these life hacks and we can just patch them in and continue on with businesses. Because it won't work. Yeah, it the, the, the problem is that capitalism is a, is a self-terminating logic yeah. and anything that comes from it, even, you know, ways of thinking that come from this extractive modality. They won't work. They just right. won't um, mm. because it's a self-terminating logic. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's built on a bedrock of, yeah. of limited resources, basically. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's going to run out eventually. Mm -hmm. And I, I think part of the what I what I see the role of artists is that they're outside of that capitalist model in many ways. Although not all of them, but mm. I, I feel yeah. for the most part, for the most part. The, um, and so. 
yeah, maybe let's get back to enchantment because I do, I did feel there was more there. And do you can, cause when you first said enchantment, I was thinking like, is that a state of awareness that's absent minded? So you're just kind of like your eyes are glazed over and you're just, Oh, wow. Look at the colors or the sounds that, you know, I've lost myself in it. Uh, or are you talking about a more active and present altered state of consciousness through enchantment? Well, the definition of enchantment is a feeling of great pleasure and delight. And I think it goes hand in hand with wonder, Mm -hmm. right? And wonder means a feeling of surprise caused by something beautiful, unexpected, Mm -hmm. unfamiliar, or inexplicable. So for me, these two words together are important because they are in the interplay between joy and the unknown. As an artist, I center enchantment in order to activate my curiosity and the curiosity of others. And it's a practice. It's a practice for these times because that which causes wonder in us is also, it also causes curiosity. And I find it essential that we get curious enough to see what's behind the breaking of the climate crisis. What's behind the breaking of the climate crisis? What's through the wreckage of extinction? What's inside the burning of a world on fire? Imagination is the weaver of wonder and it is most easily achieved by creating a sense of enchantment in the other. And that's where service comes to play. As an artist, I'm always seeking to enchant the other with an image, a word, a painting, a song, in order to unearth curiosity and to be of service. To create room for wonder in our lives during times of collapse is to make room for awe amidst the horror. It's a way of honoring the ecstatic mystery that brought us here. It is a conscious return to beauty beyond our calculations. So enchantment is to be in the chant. (laughs) It's active. Encantamiento es estar en el canto. It is to be in the song of it all. Surely we can identify many things that we have commodified. Um, The selling of water, the selling of land, the monopolization and monochromization of seeds. War is one of the biggest commodifications of life. It is also one of the most powerful rituals we can enact, pouring human blood on land for ideologies, right? Um, Putting money in Amazon stocks while the Amazon is at the brink of its tipping point and the list goes on. So when we talk about liberation, when we are talking about healing the world and we heal the world by healing ourselves, I want to, also make a clear distinction between the world and the earth, which oftentimes are used interchangeably, but they are absolutely not. The world is of our making, it's us, and the earth is our home. We do not need to save the earth. We need the world, or rather the world needs to realign itself with the earth so that she can save us. And we heal the world by returning to the ceremony of life with intention. In the words of Robin Wall Kilmer, ceremony focuses attention so that attention becomes intention. Ceremony focus attention so that attention becomes intention. 
So through this process of attention turned intention, we resacralize our beingness and enter into conspiracy with life. And we thwart all efforts from this dying capitalist empire that wants to keep us separated. Mm -hmm. This is futurist thinking. We recenter life by uncentering humanity. We recenter life by sacrificing our conveniences. Right? The etymology of the word sacrifice is to make something sacred. And sometimes it's to make it sacred again. Where can we sacrifice our conveniences to, for the resacralization of life, right? Where, where can we sacrifice our conveniences for the resacralization of life? That is a futurist question. To be a, a wisdom holder in these times is to lean into the great unknown while resacralizing to the best of our abilities the miracle of life we have turned mundane or of the world when it was never ours to subdue such magic, right? To be human is to live in this paradox, right? And turning bewilderment, which is the feeling of per being perplexed and confused, into wonder, which is to be with awe, requires a conscious act of intention setting. It is a process of making sanctuary through intention and accountability so that the mundane can become extraordinary again. For example, water is extraordinary and we've made it mundane. Literally people wash their dishes and let the water run while they're soaping their dish. I'm like, why? Why are you just letting the water run? You know, only 2% of water is drinkable. It's like not salty water on this blue marble. 2%. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Air yeah. is extraordinary, but we take it for granted. We think it's mundane. Fire is extraordinary. Land and all the abundance it generously provides is extraordinary. That we are positioned um, 150.95 million miles away from the sun at the exact location where life is possible is extraordinary. It is not mundane. <laughs> what if the thirst that we wish to quench can't be filled by just the things of this world? And enchantment is a practice where the sacred and the ordinary come together to bring delight to enhance beauty despite a world on fire. How can we use the everyday to enchant and bring wonder to those around us? Opening small glimpses into other worlds, into other possibilities, into inner possibilities, into what I call the imaginal expanse, right? So, there's, there are a lot of like um, cultural myths in one of your questions that you sent to me. You were like, what are the cultural myths of this time, right? Mm -hmm. So just, just like the cultural myths that perpetually, that, that perpetual slavery needed to be upheld in, in order for society to not collapse was eventually dispelled. I like to believe that the current day cultural myths of perpetual growth without consequence is starting to shift. The myth that we are walking on the earth instead of being of the earth is starting to transmute, I pray. Mm. I strongly believe that we are the earth thinking out loud 
a most ecstatic thought. We are the earth thinking out loud. That's all we are. And the cultural myth of ignoring trauma so that it will disappear <laughs> is no longer on stable grounds. The cultural myth that we can buy our way out of every problem that capitalism put us in, I think, is slowly starting to choke on its own lie, <laughs> I hope. Um, now, I don't know if these myths will be relinquished in time. I believe that those of us alive now are most likely the last generations to see the earth in its current state of abundance. We are moving into the heart of the sixth mass extinction and much will change in the next 25 to 50 years. Yeah. Uh, unless a miracle comes to pass, right? The cultural myth that we are the masters of the earth and therefore cannot be relinquished will also disappear with our extinction. Um, and, you know, I believe in miracles. I believe in star beings. Um, many things can happen. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but how, do we, how do we learn to die with dignity? I keep coming back to that. How do we learn to die with dignity as a species? That's at least my, deep, my deeper inquiry mm. these days. Beautiful. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm feeling the enchantment of, of this moment just listening listening to you speak and you probably hear this a lot but your voice is so musical and the way you Aww. phrase words I'm like it's like I'm doing do you do you talk like this all the time <laughs> it depends what we're talking about okay true true no I mean just the I don't know the sort of um inherit poetry in the way that you mm. f couple words together and the, the punctuated it's it's very very enchanting let's say mm. thank you and I, and I think your your um you know your reframing of enchantment is helping break me out of I guess I had a bias against the word enchantment as you were saying I was realizing mm. it mm. you know you can probably tell by my accent but I grew up in the U.S. the land of Disney and <laughs> I feel like Disney has somehow used this word a lot when I maybe when I was younger like in princess movies and things like that like it might even be a catchphrase for disney something about the disney world the land of enchantment oh gosh <laughs> and i guess i just had an aversion to that word and I, when you said it i was like eh, enchantment i don't know if, I, mm. if i'm if i'm on board for that see but i'm coming at it from 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 my lands which is encantamiento Encantamiento, yeah. to be in the song, yeah. to be yeah. in the when, chant. Right, when you said the word chant, that's where it illuminated it for me. Mm -hmm. like, oh, chant. To I be in yeah. the chant. Yeah, yeah. Enchantment. mentioned Robin Wall Kimmerer and she wrote an essay in Emergence magazine I think last year about moss about the mm. resilience of moss and how even when a volcano erupts and the entire land is covered in volcanic black glass so it seems as though it's completely dead moss underneath of a rock if it's untouched 
will start to grow and, you know, within a few years grow back and take, take over that whole land. Mm. So I guess it's leading me to a question or an inquiry about new models of resilience, new models of community. And uh, we, were, we were speaking before we recorded, and I saw on Instagram that you were at Burning Man mm. this year in 2023. Um, yeah, would you like to share a bit about that experience and maybe if it's connected with what you're speaking about today? Mm. Yeah, I think, I think it very much is. So there's, you know, there's the outward facing idea of what Burning Man is, which is the same vision that I received. And as an activist, an environmentalist, I always said, um, well, there was two parts of me, right? There's the artist in me and all my artist friends who had gone to Burning Man, like, you have to go. It is the land of art. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the environmentalist in me was like, yeah, but I've heard this and that and it's very polluted and all this stuff. And so I don't know. And I always said, I'll go. I'll go if the universe wants me to go. And I will know that the universe wants me to go because everything will be paid for. And all I will have to say is yes. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. Many, many years later, from when I first learned about Burning Man, um, everything was paid for. I was invited to help install an art piece and uh, even my car, I was on tour in California, in and out of California, so even my flights were paid for by my gigs, like everything was just, and so I went. And what I learned when I went was that it's a much deeper, um, it's a much deeper, not only experience, but ethos. So the New York Times just, you know, last week or something, when this whole thing with Burning Man and the floods happened, said Burning Man culminates in the burning of the man. Well, Burning Man does not culminate in the burning of the man. Burning Man culminates in the burning of the temple. And there's only uh, three things that are burned. Historically, only two that I've known. This year, there was three, but historically, as far as I've known, there's been two. Maybe the third has always been there and I didn't know. But um, the man and the temple and the Tower of Babel. Mm -hmm. These are all symbols. We live in a world of symbology. The things that we put energy into, the things that we um, illuminate, right, in one way or another. The idea is that the man every year gets smaller. So the man started bigger than the temple. Mm -hmm. And every year the man gets smaller and the temple grows. And the temple is a place where people go to leave their grief, where they leave images of those they've lost. Whenever you go to the temple, it is a place of silence. There's no parties around the temple. It is a place of prayer. It is a place of connection. It is a place of tears. It is a place of song. Um, but it is, it is not a place for partying, right? Mm -hmm. And the man, when the man burns, after the man burns, I think it's very poetic that there's a huge party. <laughs> the man's come down, right? Mm -hmm. But every year the man gets smaller. And when the temple burns, there's 75 to 80,000 people in absolute silence and in reverence. And so when, when the, the years I have seen the temple burn, mm -hmm. there is this peak of the fire of this moment where these wind fire tornadoes, like mini tornadoes, come out of it. And I'm sure there's some like physics to it, 
But energetically speaking, I, as a, somebody who feels energies, who is in that realm very easily, um, I know that it is those who people have left and they walk out. It's almost like a marching of the tornadoes. And they never go in the direction of people. They always go in the direction of the open playa. Wow. And my dear friend, Tigre, who you also knew, Tigre yes. Bailando, um, a, amazing installation artist, one of, not one of, literally the best dancer I've ever seen in my entire life. That's how, um, I, met, that's how I met him in the context as me a dancer. Me too. Yeah. I met him dancing. I met him on the dance floor. And um, he, he, he took his own life after the burn last year. And he had this very powerful installation at Burning Man. And he's a, a festival installation artist. He makes big art. Um, and well, I rather should say they, because they, yeah. they, they transitioned to they. Um, they make big art. And there was a moment when this one tornado came out and it was turquoise and yellow and red and it was massive and i knew it was tigre yeah. and we knew it was tigre and people started shouting his name oh man their name and the year before uh or the year i don't know if it was the year before the year that that harvey died um there was one tornado and it was massive massive and everybody was like there is there is one of the founders of this place he had passed away that year and it was like here's one and it was the biggest one i've ever seen and it just and it was the only one and it just walked away into the playa um and so i say all this because right their intention of of burning man whether you like it or not, when you buy your ticket and you agree to go, <laughs> there are these tenements, right? And I'm not going to go through all of them all, but the essence of them is that we are going to be a radical, self-reliant community. We are not going to use money. There is no exchange of money in that space. Everything is based on a gifting economy. Once you enter and you need it because you'll die out there. Those are harsh conditions to be in for 10 days. And a lot of people are like, oh, the environmentalists are like, oh my God, so much pollution. You burn all these things. Well, first of all, not, not, not many things are burned. These two intentional things are burned very symbolically. Um, but beyond that, everything is absolutely clean. There's this thing called moop. Moop is matter out of place. And everybody is asked to pick up any matter out of place. And everybody carries their little moop bag. And imagine if in real life we all carried our little moop bag, which I actually do. I did before Burning Man. When I went to Burning Man, I was like, oh, my God, these are my people. Um, you carry your little trash bag and you just pick up the trash along your path. Um, and after the, the, the entire experience is over, People are there up to three months cleaning the entire playa, making sure that it is left as pristinely as when we first arrived. The other thing is that there's this ethos of, of um, availability, right? And so there's so much magic that happens because of it. There's a portal of magic that is created in that space. And I can promise you, as 10 people who have gone there and who will and who believe and who are in, in the ethos of it all, 
and they will tell you, hey, man, I was thinking about this thing and I knew that I just I just wanted it. And the right person walked in front of me two seconds later and offered it. And I didn't even open my mouth. That happened to me about 30 times in this last burn, you know, and I was there with an art installation. I was there with purpose. I was there to also DJ, which I love DJing and creating that vibe. And um, and it was a gift. I mean, there was miracles after miracles. I'll say one 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 small miracle that feels important. I don't know if it feels important, but it feels like it wants to be spoken. After the temple burned, um, I went to to warm by the embers. And at this point, most people had left. And usually, after the the temple burns, people are in the flame, like in the embers, dancing, and there's there's a lot of com camaraderie with the fire. Um, and it was pretty late, and most of those people had left. And there was this one man in the middle of the fire, with a table, and paper, and paints. And I went up to him, and he's just drawing away in the center of these embers. <laughs> and, and he's like, would you like to draw? And I, I, I would love to, I'm a visual artist. And he had designed this uh, mechanism with uh, alcohol paints that forced you to intuitively draw because if you stayed too long anywhere, if you hesitated on the paper, it would just create a puddle of paint. And so you just had to keep your hand moving. And I was like, oh, I'm going to draw a profile and see how that goes. And the profile that came out was Tigres. I wasn't mm. thinking of Tigre. I wasn't planning on drawing Tigre. But Tigre appeared. And then I started drawing another portrait, kind of facing it, because it felt lonely to just have this portrait by itself. I wasn't planning on drawing myself. I didn't think of drawing myself. I don't even know if I've ever drawn myself to know that I can draw myself. But the profile of me appeared. And we're just facing each other. And one of the inks is uh, gold. And, they're all, and I couldn't see the gold because it was dark, right? I'm just, you know, I'm in this illuminated, it's nighttime, it's, I'm on embers. And when I hold the drawing to the light, eventually, I see that all the gold is precisely painted in, in, in such a way that there's no, if I'd thought about it logically or, you know, wanted to put it somewhere, I couldn't have done it more perfectly. And I know it was the energy of Tigre being like, I'm here with you. I got you. You know, the moment I finished, I kid you not, the moment I finished the drawing, and this is hours after the temple has burned, I look up because it looks like snow. And I'm like, what? And I look up and it's all this ash that's coming back that had been compounded in the stratosphere and was coming back around. And it fell just where I was. It fell literally on the desk and in my exact surroundings. Mm. This is the kind of, of magic that happens there because capitalism, in a sense, is removed, right? This, we're going to support, we're going to help each other, is presented. We're going to be on this place and we're going to create an experience and we're going to center art, we're going to center music, we're going to center freedom. And as long as there's no farm, there's no harm, there's no foul. Mm. And so people are the freest expressed version of their, themselves. Yeah. And when people are the freest expressed version of themselves, what comes to light is a whole other frequency. It's a whole other energy field. Mm -hmm. uh, and riding that wave is, is, is phenomenal. So that's what I'll say about that. And then what I'll say about the waters is that 
one thing that Burning Man has uh, shown me, particularly in the last two years, is that you have to be prepared for the worst. And who is your community? Who are you going to be with in those moments? And luckily enough, the community that I was with is organizers, activists, healers, you know, visionaries, caretakers. And when those waters came, we immediately came together. We built dams. We built trenches. We made sure nobody was left out without bedding. We made sure that we had the essential things to keep us going. We minimized everything that was unnecessary and we centered love, we centered care, we centered compassion and we were there for one another like you would not believe. I'm still getting messages from our entire team being like this was the most profound experience of my life and truly I will say this was the best burn yet. Mm -hmm. This was the best one yet yeah. because it, it, it is a, a, a perfect playing ground for symbolism, for preparedness, for art and creation, and for what a human being's self-expression can look like when freedom is upheld in a way that is safe and full of consent, right? Consent has got to be at the center of that freedom. Mm -hmm. So how do you hold the form? How, sorry, how do you hold the void within the form? You don't just have form mm -hmm. and only form, and you don't just have void and only void, but that there's form and that there's void. So both can dance in equal parts and something third can appear. Wow. Much, yeah, that, that's such a magical story that almost you wouldn't believe if you hadn't lived it. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, the, this one last thing I will say is that, yeah. and I don't think I said it, but a lot of people, the, right, the environment, what I started to say earlier is like the environmentalists and, you know, I heard that some people protested it and such. And um, what I think about is the fact that at the height of summer, yeah, August, yeah. you have 80,000 people unplugged from the grid mm -hmm. for 10 days, not run their AC, not individually cook in their homes. Yes, it takes energy to get there, but once we're all there, we're mostly all living in tents. We're living communally. We're living within a limited amount of water. Yeah. Um, and we're actually not pulling on that grid. Right. Yeah. No, definitely. There's uh you know, you were there, so you didn't see this side of it, but on yeah. the other side, you know, there was, I didn't get too into it, but I would see it in passing on social media and stuff, this sort of the Scheidenfreud, like disaster capitalism, like, oh no, all the rich kids at Burning Man, they're, they're going to have to deal with the floods and, you know, kind of making fun of the whole situation when I knew when when it was over and we got to hear the stories, it wouldn't be like that. It's not going to be like a zombie apocalypse movie where people are stabbing each other for food and water. I knew it would be what hopefully we can find ways to amplify and resonate for each other as we go through this extinction that you that you opened this conversation talking about. Yeah. 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 And the the stories about Tigre, wow, it's that gave me chills as well. You know, oh, and yeah. I, and I have more. I mean, I have, <laughs> I have three three real solid stories of just these magical things that you're like, wow. You know, but it's, it's, it's Tigre, but it's also that place. Right. Um, it's also that place. And yeah. the intentionality that, it, that, that folks, I, I would feel, I don't know if the majority, but I know the people I roll with enter there with. Um, and so we experience that. 
Yeah, so we've been touching into your work as an artist and as an activist, and I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about surrender in art and how one balances surrender and action when it comes to being an activist. Mm. So one of the one of the verses from a poem that I wrote says, the activist in me has come home to rest. And in the stillness, the inconspicuous beingness, once caught below the chaos, began to emerge like a chorus the future sung back. It awakened the remembrance of interconnectedness modernity had once tried to co-op and replace with deadlines, demands, deficiencies, all wrapped in a righteous form of doing. The wondrous child in me put down the resistance and for the first time could hear a world inside, behind, and through the cracks. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> you know, the, um, the etymology of, of resilience derives from the present particle of the Latin verb resilier, meaning to jump back or to recoil. The base of resilier is salier, and it's a verb meaning to rebound or to leap. So resilience, unlike what we've been taught, does not solely mean to overcome. In fact, it first means to turn away, to hesitate, to waver. <clears throat> and the speed at which we are accelerating the catastrophic blow against the future wakes me up at night. You know, it demands a, ha a halt. It demands a recoil. Resilience's silent counterpart has come to teach us of standing at the turning point, of putting down the armor, the drive, the impulse, and sitting for a moment. You know, a global plague was this turning point self-generated intelligence to get us to do just that, to be still. Whether it was a man-made virus or a naturally occurring one, I feel like the intelligence of life itself designed such a master teacher for this moment. And unfortunately, <laughs> we are poor students and the timely lessons disappeared almost as quickly as they arrived. This time is begging for us to waver, to flicker at the consumption rate and the destruction of life. We should be hesitating at every impulse that perpetuates war, the speeding of burning fuels, the building of higher walls, the melting of ice caps. I believe that in this very critical moment in human history, our resilience requires a turning inward so that we may see more clearly the contrasting light of a world on fire. Something in that contrast holds new edges. It holds new contours. It holds new landscapes. It is in this way where we might begin to feel the outer bounds of modernity. And I personally love being in that space or thinking about that. What are the outer bounds of modernity? Hmm. What's outside of all of this story that we've created and, and made our own. You know, colonialism <clears throat> has thrown people out of place. And now we believe that the misplacement is home 
or that it is unshakable or undoable. Colonialism strips us from our holy embodiment and then we believe, now we believe, that this dismemberment is natural. We are one part of a living organism and remembering that is our just and sacred assignment. It is not about being good or even doing good. Uh, it is about becoming whole once again and learning to fall without breaking that which we were gifted in its entirety. Mm. I like to to think about the fact that we are cosmic and there you know there's poetry in that but there is no poetry in that. It is quite elemental. We are made of the same substance as stars. You look at a periodic table and you will easily match the human body to the stellar body. Mm -hmm. And so what do stars do best? They shine in the great expanse of nothingness. Mm -hmm. That's what stars do best. They shine in the great expanse of nothingness. And maybe that's part of our current problem, that we are overcrowded, we're run down, we're burdened by the weight of too much stuff. You know, colonialization gave us industrialization. Industrialization gave us globalization. Globalization gave us overconsumption. Overconsumption has left us with late-stage capitalism and the garbs of a dying world. You know, welcome to the house that modernity built. <laughs> this is a hoarder's dream yeah. <laughs> of, you know, of, of soulless things that yeah. is bringing to a halt the natural flow of energy, mm. the natural flow of life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I saw this cartoon on Instagram the other day. It was uh, a, an, an older man and I guess his child standing in front of a garage that was packed to the gills. And it said, someday, son, this will all be yours. <laughs> 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 and it was like, yeah, that's like, you know, we think about what are we leaving to our to our children and it's like um, garages and basements full of junk that we nobody wants you know oh, oh my like, god the other thing well, you talked about this sort of I don't know if you said the word dreamlike quality but something you use the word magic mm-hmm. and um, thinking about resilience and models of resilience you know the earth herself became quickly resilient when the pandemic started and all the flights stopped people stopped driving so much and the the skies just became a little bit cleaner Yes. And we had these images of, of dolphins returning to Venice. You know, I don't know if they were real or not, but mm. let's just say they were for, for the sake of this conversation that how quickly the earth shows us how to be resilient, you know? Well, I remember there was a, a moment um, where there was a man, a, an Indian man who was crying, looking at the Himalayas for the first time because mm-hmm. the smog had lifted. Yeah. for the first time or yeah. the fact that um, you know those who, who study seismic activity uh, actually had to bring down their baseline barometer mm. because we stopped moving right. and the baseline of Earth's movement as far as our barometers were concerned took us into account took cars and trains and planes taking off and all of these things into account and when all that stopped the earth's movements were actually much more gentler and the baseline was actually significantly different mm. um, and and the earth did start to 
heal herself extremely quickly. Yeah. But there are tipping points, right? Mm -hmm. We have these nine planetary bounds and the IPPC report that came out in 2021 said four of them are on the verge, if not already tipped. Mm -hmm. And when you think about your major organs, if you have four of your major organs tipped <laughs> in a place of no return, quickly start to realize that there's actually a place of no return. Now, this is not necessarily for the planet. I feel very strongly that the planet will continue to be here until our sun explodes one day, right? And with it, it will take all of this. But as far as the world is concerned, as far as our place in that world. And then I, I was thinking about when you were saying this cartoon, speaking about this cartoon, uh, here's all the things that I leave you. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not just, you know, the things in the, <laughs> in the garage, but it, it's also when you think about, for example, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, uh, yeah. you know, right? It has now expanded to multiple trash vortexes in the Atlantic and in the Indian Oceans. And smaller patches are now appearing in in the North Sea, mm. right? By 2050, scientists predict that there will be more plastic particles in the ocean than fish. And it isn't just the fish that are at stake, but the entire life system as we know it. Yeah. You know, Prochlorococcus and other ocean phytoplankton, for example, are responsible for 70% of Earth's oxygen production, right? Most people don't know this. Most people think oxygen comes from the forest. Well, 30% of oxygen comes from the forest, but most of it comes from the sea. And however, research suggests that phytoplankton levels have declined by 40% since 1950 due to the warming of the oceans. So the undercurrent of another world is swelling to the surface. It's clear. Right now, we only have 3% of Earth's ecosystems left intact, 3%. Mm. Everything else has been disturbed, divided, farmed, concretized, humanized. Mm. Leading research says that we need to rewild 30% of the planet by 2030 and 50% by 2050 mm. if we are to have a livable planet in 100 years. Mm. At the rate we're going, the probability of such you know, drastic changes are quite slim. Uh, karma is boomerang <laughs> and we don't get to escape the compounding consequences. And, you know, we were born, we were born in the age of consequence. And so I guess to bring it back to where I started, you know, in the face of all this, I know that most everything in me begs for stillness, right? My soul begs for stillness and a soul like, silence uh, because there is a new contractual agreement earth is drafting up and i personally want to be sentient to its underwriting i want to know what's there in that underwriting of this new contractual agreement if nothing else to be in dignity with it to be in in, in reciprocity with it right many Many are asking, you know, what is there for us to do? And, and I think actually the better question is, how are we to be? What is the etiquette of this time? Uh, my friend Alnor says, what is the etiquette of this time? Mm. I think it's such a wonderful question. 
you know, how do we slow down so we can be with and acclimate to the cosmological changes occurring in our bodies, in our spirits, in our collective psyche, in our planet? Uh, I do believe that we are being asked to surrender. And, and there is a big difference between surrendering and giving up. I'm not saying give up. You know, one of the central etymologies of surrender is to make from above, which I think is so powerful, is to make from above. Sur-render. Render to make. Serve from above. And I think there is something very true and beautiful in that. How do we make from above? How do we perspectivize ourselves with the cosmos? the creative force, call it what you will. How, how, do we, how do we make from above? There's, there's a human psyche that's connected to a planetary psyche, that's connected to a universal psyche, and most things are beyond our understanding within that larger configuration. What we do know is that 90% of all life that has ever, ever existed on Earth has gone extinct. And maybe the role of life on Earth is to die. Mm -hmm. And if so, the question that begs to be asked, I think, is as a species, how do we die with dignity? How do we die with dignity? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So it's almost, the question isn't, what do we do, but what do we don't, <laughs> you know? What, what, or how do we be, yeah. right? How do we be? What is the etiquette of this time? Mm. What is the etiquette of the time? We are discovering more and more that it's not survival of the fittest. <laughs> it's survival of the interconnected. Yeah. Survival of the interconnected. How do we, how do we come together, right? When Hurricane Katrina... Uh, hit the Gulf Coast um, in 2005. In the lower ninth ward, every single foundation was uprooted, except the oak tree. The oak tree was the only thing, element, with a foundation that was still standing after the water subsided. And it is because the oak tree digs its roots wide and interconnects with surrounding oak trees. Mm. It doesn't dig them deep and solitary. And you can't bring down 10 oak trees. You can't bring down 100. And I feel like there is this beautiful mirror in nature there. This is how we survive the storms. And we connect in the underground. And we survive the compounding effects. But it requires... Uh, it, it requires our weaving, right? It requires, and it's hard, right? It's very hard to do that as humans. We have so many biases. We have so many judgments. We're very prone to reaction. Um, but I think that's why this time, in a lot of ways, is asking us to return inward, to come back, to be more than do, to feel more than act, to breathe more than speak, to experience and enter with curiosity and wonder into the great mystery of this time so that we may honor everything that is beyond our calculation, our control, and our predictions. 
right? I think this time is begging us to move away from this idea that we can make sense of things and instead surrender to a sense-making that, that is informed by a somatic rediscovery with life through a reacquaintance with nature, mm. right? We need to feel our way through this moment and become once again sensing witnesses in our collective experience. We're being asked to witness together potentially the end of human times as we have known it, maybe. And, and if not, at least to resacralize as we centralize life again in order to continue to participate in this miracle. We are being asked to move from rationality and return to relationality. How do we relate with one another? You know, and, and I guess the last thing, just to, to leave it with nature, because I think she's just the ultimate teacher. For me, she's the ultimate teacher, you know. When we see, we see in nature this, this, this concept of relationality. I cried when, when I first learned that uh, paper birch trees send carbon to Douglas Fird seedlings, especially when they are shaded in the summer. Enhancing their survivability. And then in the spring and fall, the Douglas fir returns the favor when the birch has no leaves. Right? That's interconnected reciprocity. Right? Similarly, when the Douglas fir begins to die off from an insect or bacterial infestation, the battered trees and their root fungi transfer not only food to nearby trees like the Ponderosa pine, but also send stress signals so that those neighboring trees will, will will up their defense systems, essentially preparing them for a similar onslaught. Interconnected reciprocity. There's this, there's, yeah, there's just this beautiful mirror that we have in nature. And I think if we, we return to, to the expanse that that is, to the beauty that that is, to to the teacher that that is, um, we'll save ourselves a lot of grief. <laughs> and in turn, we'll remember that we are nature, right? We are the earth thinking out loud. We are the earth's latest thought. Um, and we might start to make that thought a bit more beautiful. You've presented so many beautiful portals and, and things, holographic gateways, but uh, how can people connect? We'll, we'll have your website obviously in the show notes, but do you, do you have some things coming up, let's say in the fall or early yeah. next year that people can connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. So I was uh, invited to develop a course, an online course after facilitating with Resma Menachem mm -hmm. um, in his nine-month online course, um, and it went really beautifully. And Education for Racial Equity invited me to create a three-month course, uh, which I did last year and presented it last year. Uh, and it's called A Course on the Imaginal Cultivating the Visionary Self. And the course came from a lot of prayer, a lot of chanting, and a lot of sitting with my ancestors and future generations. 
And the course uh, explores and exercises the creative muscle in order to strengthen the visionary self. When we encounter and encourage the wild dance of the artists uh, within, the imaginal self becomes part of the visionary collective needed for these times. And so during the six months together, which will start in January, we will work with our bodies through what I call creativity-infused somatic practices to help move trauma through the body by consciously activating our relationship with nature and the creative force. And it explores intersectionality and intersectional equity through the lens of the imaginal and our interrelatedness with this earth. And we'll sit with grief a ceremony, we coax the artists within, we exercise and play with our intuitive bodies so that we may readily access intuition and come to trust it. And we visit ancestral and future selves, recentering the earth and bringing into, into focus our cosmic responsibility. And we activate enchantment um, in times of collapse. And what's beautiful about the course um, is that it, engages in a solidarity economy model and cycles back 50% of tuition to those on the front lines doing crucial healing work with the earth. So last year, because of last year's course uh, and with you know, the incredible match by Education for Racial Equity, we're able to distribute $45,000 to three amazing indigenous women and youth-led organizations in Ecuador and in Colombia who are protecting the Amazon. Um, and, and so, yeah, and the intention of this course is to kind of go into these deeper inquiries of this time and how do we be with this time? Um, how do we excavate that, that inner visionary, that inner artist within? And all the while doing it while, um, while, sh while sharing, while not being hoarders in the end of time. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but sharing back and sending that to, to those who are on the front lines and supporting the livability of life on earth. Beautiful. Yeah, I see the link here. So we'll have that in the show notes. And it starts, looks like January 14th. And yeah. Then all the way through the summer. Yeah, it's it's 13 sessions. So it's six yeah. months. Yeah, that's nice. That's nice, too, when you have that long time frame to kind of integrate and see how it resonates in your life. It's not these like really quick, just a weekend, and then you kind of lose it in the energy of life. It's nice to keep that container of several months yeah I, I i'm a i'm a long view thinker i like Sounds the long like view <laughs> I, I can hear that <laughs> very nice uh such a pleasure to speak with you today thank you so uh, much yeah and, and uh let's do it again and i think i think sand and elixir will continue the relationship so <laughs> thank you so much thank you so much you have a beautiful one thank you, you for too. having me message from the future that came to me like a chorus is sung back the following 13 verses one when the poles melted it deterritorialized humanity it was the hurricane of consequence that left us with floodwaters for mirrors the earthquake that erased all borders and undressed the empire 
our once foolproof shield against the earth. It left us bewildered and running towards the in-between spaces in search of what we had given up for our conveniences. Turns out, modernity provided no nutrients and magic was in abundance when we turned off the lights. said on knowing doesn't travel far. We traded mirages of certainty for a compass and found that a season of unlearning will make for a year of unearthing good soul soil. After the storms, we harvested mysteries found below the surface worth the sky entire. A site for another kind of power. It is the resacralization of sorrow in order to make room for a world beyond wholeness. What, what was the promise of bodies bent into question marks and necks underfoot? We laid on the earth and found out how we became a gourd with a spout and a spot that marked the opening into something other. We emerged as open mouths in a collective ritual of unbecoming. Four. When the activist in us finally entered the home of imagination, the inconspicuous beingness once caught below the chaos began to emerge from the stillness of our returning. Our returning. It awakened, it awakened the remembrance of interconnectedness modernity had tried to co-op and replace with deadlines, demands, deficiencies, all wrapped in a righteous form of doing. When, when the, the wondrous child in us put down the resistance, for the first time we could hear a world inside, behind, and through the cracks. There. We heard the chorus of our own futures singing back to us. Five. We were born for everything that was to come. We were born for everything that was to come. Six. We learned from the oak trees after Hurricane Katrina and the Lower Ninth Ward, the only thing left standing was the oak tree. Because instead of digging roots deep and solitary into the earth, it, it digs wide and interlocks with surrounding oak trees. Woven, they withstood the winds and the floods. Interwoven, so did we. Seven, through their galactic dance, Trees become stores of sunlight. In this bewildered cosmic exchange, they gift us back our closest star in measured volume, so we may experience the warmth of the universe right here inside our Earth. Eight, interconnected reciprocity. Paper birch trees send carbon to Douglas fir seedlings, especially when shaded in the summertime, enhancing their survivability. In spring and fall, the Douglas fir returns the favor when the birch has no leaves. Interconnected reciprocity. 
We learned from those who came before us about not throwing each other away. Nine. Life, life is the earth is the thinking earth. out loud. Thinking out loud. Life, life is the earth thinking, thinking out, out loud. loud. And we, as her latest creation, almost, almost forgot her language. With every passing day, we were losing our ability to understand what life was communing about. We realized we were missing out on the most magnificent tale of all and started to listen. That's how we learned that oak trees in a forest fire stop releasing oxygen and instead release CO2 to dampen the flames all around them. They taught us how to control our breathing in order to not add to the flames of conflict when they arose like wild forest fires between us. Between us. 10. If we were to take a clock and use 24 hours as the indicator for the evolution of life up until now, and start that clock at midnight, the hours between 12 and 3 in the morning, a meteor bombardment. At around 4 a.m., the origins of life begin. By 2 in the afternoon, single-cell algae appear. Jellyfish and seaweed come out around 9 p.m. Land plants join the party at 9.52. Dinosaurs show up at almost 11 p.m. Mammals enter the stage 39 minutes later. Anatomically modern humans don't come on the scene until the last four seconds before the clock strikes midnight again. Four we are the Earth's latest act of ecstatic co-creation with the universe, a, a beautiful, beautiful train, train wreck of a species. In our convenient continuity, we almost destroyed in milliseconds what has taken 24 hours, 4.4 billion years to create. Eleven. 99% of all life that has ever existed on Earth has gone extinct. And maybe, maybe the role of life on Earth is to die. If so, the question that begged to be asked was, as a species, how do we learn to die with dignity? Our journey into this inquiry made us good ancestors. 12. Envisioning and co-manifesting a just and thriving world was an act of reverence for everything that brought us here. That time, that time invited us all to become imaginers, vision seekers, catchers of future moments untold, dream weavers, despite and because of the cessation all around all around us. 13. Behind the ethnographic journey towards wonder, a new cosmology cracked into existence, leaving behind the reductionist, the easy arrival, the answer, worth giving.
Thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of sand content, available exclusively to sand members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.